visual podcasts are coming. The link to the Redacted History Visual Podcast YouTube channel is in the description below. People have been asking me for a visual podcast to go along with this audible podcast. And I'm a man of the people. So check it out. And visual podcasts are coming this month, July 2022. I want to start this episode with a message. We all know what's gone down in the last couple of weeks. I don't have to repeat to you what everyone's read on social media and watched on the news repeatedly. But let me make myself very clear. A woman undeniably, undoubtedly, unequivocally has every right in the universe to do whatever it is she wants to do with her body. And if that means terminating a pregnancy for whatever reason it may be, then so be it. This podcast and this space is a safe space for women and anyone else that this ruling may negatively affect. And if you disagree, if you think I'm being too political, pause this episode, close the app, and go book a therapy appointment. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Redacted History Podcast. Today is June 30th, but you're probably listening to this episode sometime in July. And that is because my life is a mess. But that's neither here nor there. Because either way, you're going to get this content. Today is the last day of Pride Month. And on today's episode, I wanted to move myself and my identity to the side and uplift the stories and voices of the folks in the LGBTQ plus community, especially the black folks in the LGBTQ plus community. Because I feel that sometimes when we are screaming for inequality, as we have done so many times in the last two years and the years before that and the decades before that, we often forget that black people and people in general are not a monolith. There are so many identities and intersectionalities within our diaspora. And that's what I wanted to spend this episode talking about just a little bit. So you may be looking at the title of this episode and the subject matter, and you might be a little uncomfortable, but I encourage you to listen and learn and make an effort to decolonize your mind. I promise you will be okay. Pride for me is joy community. You know, black people and our black people joy and our sense of community. And it's a part of our culture but black queer people specifically, Marsha P. Johnson being a great example of this, we've only had each other. Black queer people got black queer people's backs. And so that's where the community comes in. And it's the joyous thing to have a community, to have a safe space. That's what pride is to me. So I got the idea for this episode last week. So as some of you may know, or if you didn't know, right now I'm in school to obtain my doctorate of education focusing on organizational leadership from the University of Dayton, a small college in Dayton, Ohio. It is a three-year program. We are basically taking one long crash course on how to be an effective leader. How do you truly lead someone? Why should people listen to you? Are you even worth listening to? I'm 27 years old and the youngest person in the program. Most of my peers are in their 40s and 50s. They are elementary school principals, nonprofit leaders, healthcare workers, among many, many other things. And these are folks who are trying to be and become better leaders, leaders of entire organizations. And naturally, in this kind of program, we have lots of courageous conversations surrounding marginalized populations and racial equity within our society. But I noticed that even in these conversations, I noticed a lot of people holding back. 
We've been talking about Roe v. Wade. We've been talking about police brutality, black women's maternity rates, Pride Month and LGBT representation in leadership spaces. Honestly, nothing is off limits. And I feel these folks holding back because they are afraid of what they don't understand or if their opinions are wrong or if they're going to offend somebody. And that's really the point of me doing this show, this podcast, to bring these conversations, this kind of subject matter to the forefront so that people know that it is okay to ask questions and to inquire. So earlier I said a word, intersectionality. Andre, what does that even mean? Intersectionality was coined by one of my idols, the great Kimberly Crenshaw. She is one of my heroes. It's a term coined by Professor Crenshaw that describes how your race, class, gender, and other individual characteristics intersect with one another and overlap. The lived experiences of a straight white woman are going to be wildly different than the lived experiences of a bisexual black woman or straight disabled black man. And this phrase upsets a lot of people. And by people, I mean white people. It's another term coined by a scholar who folks hate and don't even understand, or at least they think they do. They view it as some sort of a caste system that seeks to indict or criminalize white people for just being white, placing the white male patriarchy at the top. But that's not what it is at all. It's simply saying, hey, Bartholomew, you were born straight, male and white. There's a good chance that due to the way that our society is constructed and set up, you're going to have more benefits and a chance at American salvation in comparison to a black woman. And that's just the facts. Kimberly Crenshaw, who designed these thought structures, is a graduate of Cornell, Harvard and the University of Wisconsin. I'm going to listen to her word over some angry white man who simply isn't seeking to understand. And you should, too. I think I did a pretty decent job of explaining all of that, but I'll let Dr. Crenshaw explain herself a little more. Intersectionality is just a metaphor for understanding the ways that multiple forms of inequality or disadvantage sometimes compound themselves and they create obstacles that often are not understood within conventional ways of thinking about anti-racism or feminism or whatever social justice advocacy structures we have. Intersectionality isn't so much a grand theory, it's a prism for understanding certain kinds of problems. African-American girls are six times more likely to be suspended than white girls. That's probably a race and a gender problem. It's not just a race problem, it's not just a gender problem. So I encourage people to think about how the convergence of race stereotypes or gender stereotypes might actually play out in the classroom, between teachers and students, between students and other students, between students and administrators and commit themselves to understanding that as a way of intervening and providing equal educational opportunity for all students, regardless of their identities. Identity isn't simply a self-contained unit. It is a relationship between people in history, people in communities, people in institutions. So schools do a good job when they understand that and when they commit themselves to curricular development, to opportunities in the school, for all students to understand the histories that have brought us to this particular moment. You can't change outcomes without understanding how they've come about. So independent schools can take the lead on that to be responsive to their student populations and to the communities out of which the students come.
If you like the Redacted History Podcast and what I do here, consider supporting me on Patreon. If you want behind-the-scenes looks at how the podcast is made, voting on what topics we talk about, discounts on merch, and much, much more, go on over to Patreon. You'll find it linked in the description of this show below. But where am I going with this? Oh, yeah. I wanted to use this moment for us to remember the life of a woman whose experiences were the epitome of marginalized intersecting identities. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality in 1989, but Marsha P. Johnson was living it in real time, decades earlier. Today, I wanted to talk a little about Marsha P. Johnson, the Stonewall Inn riots, and the legacy of the gay pride movement, and the importance of intersectionality as it pertains to it. Have you ever heard of Marsha P. Johnson? I, I'm going to be honest, I had never heard of her until Black History Month this year. I did a series on TikTok. Some of you may have seen it. They love it. It's critically acclaimed. Uh, badass Black History. And people were telling me, Marsha P. Johnson, you should do Marsha P. Johnson. Talk about Marsha P. Johnson. And I got around to it. I researched her and... I, it, it, it was mind blowing. Um, she has a, a story that, you know, if you read it from front to back, you're, you're probably going to shed a tear because it's sad. It, it, it's an incredibly sad story, but a story that should inspire you to be a better person, to fight for what you believe in and never stop fighting. Marsha P. Johnson was a transgender black woman living in New York at the height of basically every ism in America. She was an LGBTQ advocate and outspoken advocate for trans people of color. She was born August 24th, 1945, in Elizabeth City, New Jersey. She was raised in a devout Christian household, which made the transitioning of her identity very hard on her. She moved to Greenwich Village in New York after graduating from high school and struggled greatly to make ends meet and ended up resorting to sex work in the city throughout her adulthood. Marsha used her traumas and experiences to move to the forefront of the gay New York community and become what some called a drag mother, becoming an advocate and safe space for the LGBT youth in New York when they had nowhere else to go. Folks she would encounter would always pry about her gender identity and ask what the P in her name stood for, and she would always respond, pay it no mind. New York City has a very complicated history with the LGBTQ community. As of 2005, over 270,000 gay identifying people lived in New York City. The relationship up until you could say the 20th century was always tense. And it's still tense to this day, but it was especially tense in the 20th century. Back in 1912, there were asylums in the city that operated under a sterilization law where women who birthed undesirable children, and we know what that means, would be lobotomized and sterilized. There were anti-gay laws enacted throughout the city through all of the 20th century for the most part. Police raids were common for gay bars and places where gay people would congregate. It was illegal for a very long time for men to dress in drag. It was also illegal to dance with a person of the same sex. A 1942 medical journal by the Journal of Criminal Psychopathology documented the lobotomization of a gay man who was accused of being with another man. And he was lobotomized. If you don't know what lobotomy is, please go look it up. Through the 1950s and 60s, anti-LGBT laws continued unabated and gay people became more and more frustrated with them and mistreatment by local authorities. 
On June 28, 1969, at the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street, uh, this was a hub of the New York City gay community in the 1960s, things turned violent after a few LGBTQ people were arrested on questionable charges, handcuffed, and very publicly forced into police cars on the streets of New York City. The LGBTQ community was fed up with being targeted by the police and seeing these public arrests incited rioting that spilled over into the neighboring streets and lasted several days. These events have been collectively described as a riot, a rebellion, a protest, and an uprising. Whatever you want to call it, this was certainly a moment in LGBT history that ignited everything that was to come. Many eyewitnesses have identified Marsha as one of the main instigators of the uprising, and thus, some have recognized her as the vanguard of the gay liberation movement in the United States. While there are many conflicting stories about the uprising start, it is clear that Marsha P. Johnson was on the front lines. In one account, she started the uprising by throwing a shot glass in a mirror. In another account, she climbed a lamppost and dropped a heavy purse onto a police car, shattering the windshield. Young trans women like Marsha were particularly vocal that night because they felt they had nothing left to lose. Their rage was not just about the police. It was about the oppression and fear they felt every single day. The Stonewall Uprising was an awakening for an entire generation of LGBTQ activists. Soon, Marsha was attending and leading rallies, sit-ins, and meetings of the newly formed Gay Liberation Front. She was excited about the work but frustrated at how white gay men and lesbians dominated the conversation. She questioned where transgender people fit in. Trans people were more likely to be homeless and targeted by the police, so she felt like they deserved a voice in the conversation as well. The movement did not appreciate the extent to which transgender youth needed help and support. Now, with all of this going on, and remember, this is still the 1960s and 70s in America. We got a lot of other things going on, too, regarding race and racial equity and identity equity and all those things. Now, with all this going on, imagine being a black trans woman in the midst of it all. Not only are you in the midst of it all, you're at the forefront of it all. Despite it all, Marsha stood strong. It was one of the, if not the loudest voice for gay rights. Following the events of the Stonewall riots, Marsha and her best friend, Sylvia Rivera, another trans woman of color, founded STAR, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. STAR provided services, including shelter, to homeless LGBTQ people in New York City, Chicago, California, and England for a few years in the early 1970s, but it was eventually disbanded. On the first anniversary of the Stonewall Riot, Marsha participated in the very first gay pride rally, which at the time was called the Christopher Street Liberation Day. In 1973, Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were actually banned from marching the gay pride parade because they wouldn't allow drag queens. And guess what they did? They marched anyway. Marsha spent all of her life dealing with large levels of adversity, dozens and dozens of arrests, many cold nights out on the street, being forcibly medicated by mental institutions, and she was even shot once. But despite all of this, through the 70s and 80s, Marsha continued to be a light to the downtrodden and forgotten. And I wish there was a better end to her story. Marsha's life was eventful to say the very least, and unfortunately, it ended in tragedy and mystery. On July 6, 1992, Marsha's body was found floating in the Hudson River. 
The police ruled that she had committed suicide, but her friends, family, and eyewitnesses sensed there was definitely foul play involved. A key eyewitness stated that he saw a gash or something wound-like in her head when he saw her floating. Forensic investigators chalked this up to potential decomposition of the body. Many people were furious and still are because they felt that the NYPD didn't thoroughly and adequately investigate her death. Almost as if they had something to hide, but you know. Marsha's funeral was attended by so many people that crowds spilled out onto the streets. Everyone understood that her impact was felt. Transgender people are over four times more likely than cisgender people to experience violent victimization, including rape, sexual assault, and aggravated or simple assault, according to a new study by the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law. In addition, households with a transgender person have higher rates of property victimization than cisgender households. Marsha's case is still unsolved and cold to this day. Marsha, I salute you and everything you've done in the face of evil and adversity. But I want her last memory in this episode to be that of the good that happened to Marsha. Marsha was the light. Folks referred to her as Saint Marsha. She was colorful and her memory is being preserved as it should. In 2019, New York City announced that a statue of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera would be the first monument to honor trans women in the city. In 2020, New York State named a waterfront park in Brooklyn after Marsha. I encourage you all to take some time to watch The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson on Netflix. It's a great documentary. My message for today's episode is this. It's simple. Treat everyone with respect and love because we all deserve to be treated like decent human beings, no matter our religion, race, creed, or gender identity. And also, mind your business. Until next time. Without people like Marsha P. Johnson and other black trans women, there would be no modern day pride movement. Like they were the trailblazers. They were the people that were organizing on the ground. They were the people on the front lines of pride of the LGBTQ rights movement in the 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, even today. And so you can't really minimize their accomplishments, first of all, but like the impact that they have had on the broader queer community, which is frustrating because they often don't get the credit that they deserve. You know, we talk about it now, not as much in the past, but the first Pride was a riot. It was a riot started by black queer women who were fed up with the way that their lives were policed. And that means everything and i think people need to be taking some notes because based on the direction this country looks to be headed in we're going to need a lot more marsha p johnson's if you like this episode of the redacted history podcast consider scrolling down and giving us a rating and review it goes a long way i appreciate everybody's support and excitement and feedback around this podcast. I'm so excited to see where we go.